0: Uh, Those who have come today particularly excited about the uh, BUILD topic, which was finding joy in exhaustion, Um, although the word exhaustion will crop up a few times in the talk, it's probably not the truest description of this talk, so uh, we've kind of tweaked it slightly. Uh, Finding joy in holiness is altogether more highbrow and more fitting for the talk you're about to hear. Now, before we actually get into today's passage, I just want to spend a while setting the thing up, because... It really helps to understand the theological context. Now, some of you hear that phrase, theological context, and you switch off immediately. Bear with me, please. This is going to help you. It's going to be worth you paying attention to this introduction. Because here's what I want you to see. There are three major theological ideas that the Apostle Paul weaves into pretty much all of his New Testament letters. So, if you're going to fully understand and benefit from the New Testament, you need to understand these theological ideas. It's like he speaks of salvation in three different terms. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification speaks of the past. Sanctification pretty much speaks of the present And glorification speaks of the future. And there'll be a prize to the person in the next few weeks in the time of worship who prays out and uses all of those words in their prayer. Or perhaps a a challenge to some of the songwriters in the church. Maybe the next worship song we sing should feature all of those words. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, what do they really mean? Well, let's start with justification. Justification answers the question... How can we as sinners stand before a holy, good and righteous God and expect anything from him but the condemnation of hell? Well, the answer is, Jesus came. Jesus is God and he lived a life without sin and he died to pay the penalty for our sin and he rose again for our salvation. And as a result, if we trust in Jesus, he justifies us. It is just as if we had never sinned. That's exactly what Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 9, just prior to the section we're going to be looking at today. Paul says he wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He's making the point that to be justified, or to be forgiven, to be connected to God, to be acceptable in God's sight, to be justified, is absolutely nothing that we do. You don't get to be a Christian by being a good person. You don't get to be a Christian by being a moral person or a religious person or a phenomenally spiritual person. You don't get to be a Christian or get right with God by reincarnating and coming back and paying Him back somehow. None of those things work. The only way to know God and be right with him is through faith in Christ. Paul says we need the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So righteousness, it's a gift. Salvation, it's a gift. Forgiveness is a gift. We receive it from Jesus and trust in his work, not our own. And so all of our salvation was accomplished when Jesus died on the cross. And it was applied to us in that moment when the Holy Spirit regenerated us or caused us to be born again and gave us the faith we needed to believe. You see, it's something that we receive. And as a result, it's effortless. We don't do anything to become Christians. Jesus did all the work on our behalf in the past. And by faith, we trust in him. That's justification. And then elsewhere, Paul says that in the future, we'll be glorified. Just like Jesus rose from the dead, one day we also will be raised from the dead. And on that day, we'll get brand new, perfect resurrection bodies to live forever with God on a brand new earth. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 21. He describes how Jesus will transform our lowly bodies so that they will become like his glorious body. That's what's meant by the term glorification. And that, too, is effortless. Again, Jesus is the one who does all the work. We're dead in the grave, and one day, Jesus will reunite our spirit with our brand-new resurrection body, will be resurrected just like Jesus to enjoy eternal life. And so, if you like, glorification and justification Are the bookends of salvation. And then in the middle, in between glorification and justification, comes sanctification. And sanctification, unlike the other two, isn't effortless. It's a ton of work and it's pretty exhausting at times. That's why most people feel that they'll just focus on justification and glorification. It's kind of like receive Jesus and go to heaven. That's what being a Christian is all about. And they miss all of the stuff in the middle, which is your life, your life of sanctification, where you repent of sin, and you learn, and you grow, and you change, and you're transformed. That's the bit that requires effort. That's why Paul tells us in the previous chapter of Philippians 2, verse 12, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to act according to his good purpose. God's working in us, he's working through us, he's working on us, and we need to join with God, and it's hard work at times. How many of you? Perhaps you're experiencing sanctification in your life right now as a Christian, and it is exhausting. You're like, I've got to repent again. I've got to develop even more in that area. I've got to stop doing this and start doing that. It's like the closer I get to Jesus, the more I become aware of things in my life that need to change. Or how many of you, when when perhaps you became a Christian, you, you felt like, well, I think I'm doing pretty good. And then the more you read the Bible, you're like, what? I mean, I'm even more messed up than I even imagined. That's sanctification. You get closer to Jesus, you look at him and look back at yourself and realize there's still much work to be done. And so you work with Jesus to become more like him. And although it can be hard work, and although it can be pretty exhausting at times, it is worth it. It is worth it. Because knowing Jesus and becoming more like Jesus is the greatest thing Imaginable. And if there's even a part of you that doubts this, then I'd I'd humbly suggest you don't know Jesus well enough. There is no better way to spend life than investing it in your relationship with Jesus, enjoying Him and living to please Him. It isn't dull, it's not a duty, it's not heavy, it's not a burden. It's not all about condemnation and guilt. Yeah, it can be hard work and exhausting at times, but it's the only way to experience life in all its fullness. It's the only way to find true joy. And so, what I want us to do then with the rest of our time today is look at these verses in Philippians 3. What I want us to do is learn from the Apostle Paul, who was unbelievably passionate in his pursuit of becoming more like Jesus. Let's start reading in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect, but nonetheless I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining towards what's ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature, we should take such a view of things and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you, only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join with others, in following my example, brothers. And take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For, as I've often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is just on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will become like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. And so, if you today are serious about being a follower of Jesus, please be serious about being a follower of the Lord Jesus. There are some key lessons in this passage that you desperately need to hear. You see, Paul's desire is that we follow his example, that we should give ourselves to becoming more like Jesus. And to that end, in these verses, he exposes a number of wrong ways of thinking, a number of wrong attitudes that very much get in the way of this whole process of sanctification. And so what I want us to do for the rest of our time is tackle these wrong attitudes, these wrong ways of thinking head on. So here they are. Number one, perfectionism. Number two, passivity. And number three, worldliness, perfectionism, passivity, and worldliness, three things that work against us finding joy in holiness. Let's start with perfectionism. Now, how many of you would be bold enough to say that you are perfect? Any perfect people here today? Well, there was one at the other site, Uh, none here today, in this site. Well, uh, uh, none of us would say I'm perfect, None of us are say, so, just follow me because I've figured it all out. It, if you've got any questions, ask me because I've got all the answers. In fact, Jonathan, just shut up. Go and sit down. Let me come to the front. And I'm just going to stand in front of everyone else. Everyone else can just watch and learn as they gaze on my radiant perfection. None of us would be bold enough to say that. But a lot of us act as if we were perfect. I want you to think about it. When you are confronted with sin, do you humbly listen or do you find yourself reacting in such a way as you try to justify yourself or defend yourself? Or when you've sinned, do you immediately repent and apologize and put it right or do you find yourself shifting the blame? I don't know. Perhaps you blame it on someone else. Well, I had a go at you because you provoked me. So it's your fault, really? I mean, I took control of your mouth and I somehow said those words, that's on me, I did that. We blame other people Or, or sometimes we make excuses. Well, you know, my dad hit me when I was a child, so you know, I get to hit people nowadays. Or growing up, my parents didn't love me, so I get to be obnoxious for the rest of my life. I'm a victim so I get to victimize others. Or we blame it on our personality. I don't know. I I, I took a personality test, and I'm in this very small minority of people who are programmed to be lazy and rude and violent and godless. That's just my personality. So I'm a victim to my genetics. And so what we do is we churn out all these genetic excuses, and we can have all these cultural excuses, and we can have blame shifting, and we can have others that we blame for stuff that's actually our own responsibility. It's like we have all these diversionary tactics going on. So none of us would be bold enough to say, well, I'm perfect. But many of us act as if we were And when we're confronted, we're hard-hearted, and rebellious, and foolish, and proud, and obstinate, and disobedient, and self-righteous, and self-justifying, and blame-shifting. That's how we respond. Or alternatively, perhaps we act as though we think we should be perfect it's like we constantly feel condemned and disqualified because we are acutely aware of our imperfections. Maybe we live with shame and embarrassment and guilt and failure and a constant sense of unworthiness. But in verses 12 and 13 here, Paul makes it crystal clear that Christians do not and in fact cannot attain perfection in this life. Notice what he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. And then in verse 13, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. What's the it? Surely it's that for which Christ Jesus had taken hold of him, the perfect holiness which he's been talking about in the previous verses. Paul is making it clear here that he is not there yet. He's saying, Philippians, understand, I am pressing on. I have a zeal to become more like Jesus, like you can't believe, but I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived at that perfection, and I won't arrive at that perfection until the final resurrection. Until then, life's a journey. It's growth in grace, but it's not perfection. As Augustine put it many years ago, The church is not a place where perfect people gather, but it's a hospital where sick sinners get well. I think that's the point that Paul's pressing in this passage. We are not there yet. And in verse 15 he says, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. One of the ways to become mature is to acknowledge you are not perfect. Maturity is to say, okay, I've sinned. You're right, I repent. I apologize. And with God's help and God's strength, I will seek to change and put this right. Really appreciate you bringing this to my attention. You know what? No one has ever had the courage to confront me like that before. I appreciate you pointing out these things because it shows you really care for me. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, I'm mature. And what that means is, you can teach me something, I'll learn. You can rebuke me of something and if it's true, I'll repent. You can point out a flaw in my life and I'll try and work on it. And Paul would say, I'd encourage everyone to imitate my example. I want you all to be mature like this. I want you all to desire to be more like Jesus while recognising you're not there yet. You know, so many of us are gripped by fear, and by shame, and by embarrassment about our past. So we spend all our time trying to cover up our sins so others don't see it, and secretly feeling condemned by it. Listen, Jesus died for it, so you can be forgiven, and you can stop beating yourself up about not being perfect, and you can put an end to having to present an image to others that you are perfect, Getting the message. There is no room for this kind of perfectionism. But having said that, if you get this message, there is the danger that it could lead to another wrong attitude, namely passivity. I mean, if we're always going to fall short of perfection this side of heaven, what's the point of even trying? I mean, if we're saved and we're going to heaven, well, hallelujah, I can just coast along and do nothing until we get there. I'm secure in my salvation, I'm going to heaven, don't have to do anything, Jesus does it all, I can relax and put in no effort. I can be passive. Well, I guess there's a certain logic to that. But it's a logic that the Apostle Paul didn't recognise. It's a logic that's completely alien to him. Paul goes on to say is that, Though we aren't there yet, we are still to press on with zeal and with passion and with energy. We're to be active in growing in holiness, in becoming more mature in Christ, in pursuing godliness, in living up to what we have already attained. I want you to notice the language that Paul uses here, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, verse 16, just keeps coming at us. I press on. I forget what is behind. I strain towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal. Paul's saying, my pursuit of holiness is active and passionate. I desire with all of my strength to be more like Jesus Christ and I press on with much energy and much effort to attain that with everything I've got. Now, if you're here today, And you'd say, if you're being honest, you're not a follower of Jesus for yourself. I just want to be clear on something. I don't want you to misunderstand this. I'm not telling you that this is the way to find salvation. If this is the way that you're saved by your hard work and your effort, then you are in big trouble. We're all in big trouble. This is not the way that you're saved. The way that you're saved is by embracing the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And the message of the gospel is that God made us and God cares for us. But we've chosen effectively to worship ourselves, to follow ourselves, to live for ourselves and to turn our back on him. And this has resulted in us walking a path of self-destruction and harming others as well. Is led to our estrangement, our separation, our alienation from God, and ultimately will end up with his righteous judgment of us. But God Himself, in His love and in His mercy, He has taken the initiative and He has come to us in the person of His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to save us from God's just judgment and from ourselves. Jesus. He lived a life that we have not and cannot in our place. And he died a death that we should have, but that he shouldn't have in our place for our forgiveness and for our acceptance with God. And all who respond in faith and in repentance to that phenomenally good news, they freely receive forgiveness and are welcomed into God's family and are brought into intimate relationship with him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So when you hear Christians urging one another to press on, to strive, to grow in holiness, they're not talking about how they are made right with God. They're talking about having been made right with God by grace, how they then become more like the Lord Jesus Christ who saved them by grace. And that's pretty much what we're talking about today. And so, for those of us here today who are believers, we come to this breathtaking passage and we hear Paul say, press on. And we know that when it comes to godliness, when it comes to holiness, that this means we must never ever settle with where we are right now. I want to listen again to what Paul says in the second half of verse 12. He says, I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of of me. Paul knows that he's been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone and yet he is utterly dissatisfied with staying where he is in his present state of godliness. He wants to be more like Jesus and he's pressing on to that end, not so that Christ will accept him but because Christ already has. He's motivated by grace. Do you understand? As Christians, we want to grow. Not so that we'll be embraced by Christ, but because we have already been embraced by Christ. We don't stop gossiping and lying and swearing and being selfish and sleeping with our girlfriend just to try and make Jesus love us more. No we readily choose to do all of that because he already loves us as much as an infinite God could ever love us. When I married Helen, my wife, 15 years ago this week, I made some pretty massive vows to her. I didn't make them because I wanted to somehow earn her love I made them because I knew she loved me and she accepted me despite all my faults, or at least the faults she was aware of at that moment in time. And also because I loved her in return. And ever since, I've been trying to live out those vows, not because I feel I ought to and not always successfully, very rarely successfully, but because I want to, because I love her. And when I mess up, It doesn't mean that Helen automatically stops loving me or that our marriage is suddenly over. It's a covenant. It's for life. And it's fun, working out new creative ways to bring a smile to her face. It's not a burden. It's not driven by guilt and by condemnation. It's a pleasure. And how much more so with God? Paul had tasted the extraordinary love of God forgiving him accepting him, giving him hope and peace and overwhelming joy. Does that lead Paul to say, well, nothing more for me to do then? No, what what does it do? It, It impels him to the pursuit of holiness because he's been accepted and loved and embraced by Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has made him his own, it makes him want to become more like Jesus. So let me ask you, Is that how you think? Or have you allowed yourself just to grow ever so slightly passive? Do you view view growth in godliness as too difficult, too much like hard work? Pretty pointless, really, because I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. I mean, why put in the effort? And so you do nothing. The Book of Common Prayer a book that we seldom refer to in this context, speaks not only of confessing the things that I've done that I ought not to have done, but it also speaks of those things that I ought to have done but I haven't. I think perhaps some of us need to come to God and say, Lord, please forgive me for the things I haven't done today. Or Lord, please forgive me for the times when I haven't taken the initiative that you are calling me to take. You know, I believe God is wanting to release many of you into passionate pursuit of him. And maybe you just need a bit of a nudge, or a bit of a push, or a bit of a shake, to get you going again, and to see that passivity isn't really an option. And I'm not looking to motivate you with guilt and condemnation and pressure, but trying to alert your heart towards God again. And causing you to see that there's a much better life for you to live and it it comes from a heart that's been won by him. For some of you, you need to draw a line under passivity, not taking risks, playing it safe, playing it easy, just settling, being content for where you're at. I want to say today, no more passivity. That's the second wrong attitude that Paul nails here, passivity. The third one's this. Worldliness. Worldliness. In verse 19, Paul warns the Philippians about people whose minds are set on earthly things. And the reason I think he's warning them is because even people who are religious, even people who are spiritual, even people who claim to be Christians, they can still become captivated by this kind of worldliness. Now interestingly, Paul seems to be diagnosing worldliness here as a heart condition it's not necessarily about outward appearance or behavior it's a matter of what we love it's a matter of where we belong it's a matter of what we want most in life it's as though worldliness takes control of our minds and our will and our affections it takes control of our thinking and our living and our desiring and we end up becoming so infected that our appetites change we have earthly appetites it's like our god Is our stomach. We care more about breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We care more about our favourite drink and our favourite dessert and our favourite TV programme and our favourite sports team than we do to Jesus. That's by way of an aside you can kind of track it in people's Facebook statuses. The amount of times people talk about the food that they're eating or the chocolate they're dreaming of or how their sports team's doing. Very rarely do you see people updating their Facebook status to say how much they're enjoying Jesus right now. Just a thought. Anyway, coming back to where I was going, it's not that eating and drinking and updating your Facebook status like that is a sin. But when it becomes our God, when food or sexual satisfaction or TV or sport or alcohol or whatever the desires of the flesh are, when they become the places that we run for comfort and help, when we're hurting, we run there, when we're happy, we run there, they become our functional saviors. They're what we worship. They're what we depend on. They're what we crave. They're the things that get us through. They effectively become false gods to us, and with tears, Paul says, it'll kill us. It'll kill us. Why? Because it tricks our hearts into seeking satisfaction in what can never truly satisfy us. It's soul-destroying. It's joy-robbing. It slightly strangles us of the experience of being fully alive to God. I want to ask you to play a little mental game with me because maybe to this point in the talk you've been thinking, well, this sermon really is for someone else, is not for me. I mean, I'm here, aren't I? I mean, I'm in church pretty much every Sunday. I mean, it it can't be for me. Let me ask you this. Let's say you are sitting down next to an unbelieving friend of yours. Maybe it's a neighbour, maybe it's a colleague, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a long-time friend from school. You're sitting down next to your unbelieving friend, and you're both going to write on a sheet of paper for no one else to see. You're not putting on a show for anyone else. This is just for you. You're going to write down on that sheet of paper what you care about most in life, what your habits are, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what you want more than anything in this world, what your aspirations are, what your greatest desires are, what your ambitions are, what you want out of life. Let me ask you just one question. How is your list going to differ from your unbelieving friends list? How do they differ? And if you don't have a really good answer for that right now, my guess is you may be struggling with worldliness. Because we ought to be very different from people whose citizenship is effectively just here on this earth. Paul says that Christians have a heavenly focus. We know that this life's short and that eternity is with Jesus. And we're looking forward to being with Jesus and we're preparing ourselves to be with Jesus. And all the language Paul uses is like running a race. It's like Jesus is our finish line and we just keep running until we see him and then we get to rest forever in his presence. So in conclusion let me very quickly give you three things that Paul says that we can do if we want to avoid these wrong attitudes, if we want to avoid worldliness and passivity and perfectionism, three things that will help you run faster and finish well. Here's the first one. Act like me. Act like me. One of the ways that Paul says here, we can help ourselves grow in all of these things, is by following his example, and interestingly, the example of those who follow his example. Verse 17, he says, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern that we gave you. What he's saying is, find people who have been justified and are being sanctified and hang out with them, learn from them, watch them, Invite them to speak into your life. If you've got a certain sin that you're struggling with in your life, find people who used to do that and they've stopped and spend time with them and ask them what Jesus taught them that would be helpful for you right now. As a church, we run all these kind of different groups so that you can find people that have worked things out so that they can now walk through them with you. We run life groups and marriage courses And parenting courses and freedom in Christ courses, so many courses. I want to say, pursue getting involved in one of those groups. Pursue Christian friendships. Pursue accountability with others. Let me say, I could rattle off a long list of people in this room who could show you in various difficult situations how a Christian does it. Maybe you could help others. You may not be perfect yourself, you may still need to learn from others but you have cracked it in some areas and you could help others and depend on others in other ways. Apostle Paul would be saying to you, just open your eyes. Have a good look around. You look at the people that are acting like me and you go away and start acting like them because they're showing you the way. They're striding on ahead in some areas so you can follow in their slipstream. That's the first thing that Paul says, act like me. The second thing is be homesick. Be homesick. Anyone here from Wales? Ah, God, loads of you. Okay, uh, there was one person on the other side, and, and they concurred, so uh, I know I'm on safe ground here. The Welsh, all these Welsh people here are being invaded. They have a word. Uh, I think it's something like hirias, Hirath? Hirath? hirass. Maybe it's my pronunciation. Uh, the Welsh guy on the other side, they recognize it straight away. Uh, and it, th- this word means an indescribable, deep, yearning, and longing for home. And Welsh people, apparently, when they're away from Wales, they feel this all the time. Do you feel this right now? Oh, yeah, yeah, you miss the sea. And the rolling countryside, and the rain, and the cold, and and all of that. But they want to be back home. want to be back in their native land. There's a deep longing for home. It's like Paul is giving the Welsh application here to everyone. In verse 20 he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they'll be like his glorious body. I'm trying to help you with another illustration. A week ago I went to Istanbul just for a few days. Now it was such a brief visit I didn't even bother unpacking my suitcase. I didn't learn the language. I didn't even adjust my watch. Walking around the city, I looked pretty much like everyone else. But actually, I didn't belong there. I didn't fully identify. In a few days, I wouldn't be there anymore. I'd be flying home again. And Paul's saying, that's how you'd have viewed this world. It's not permanent. We're just passing through. Now look, if I thought this life was going to last forever, or that this was all there is, then I might think differently. I might live differently. But I know that eternity awaits. The new heavens and the new earth, they lie ahead of me. So it kind of makes sense to get ready, to prepare, to travel lightly. As Jim Elliot, the young American missionary martyr, he said shortly before he died, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Listen, if you are not heavenly minded, if you're not even a little bit homesick for your true home, if you're not longing for something that this world can't give you, you are always going to be susceptible to worldliness. You're always going to be vulnerable to believing that this world can actually give you something that can last. Paul would say to you, be homesick. Be homesick for your true home. And then thirdly, continue to stand firm. ABC, act like me. Be homesick for your true home. Continue to stand to stand firm. Having given all of this breathtaking teaching, Paul says in the beginning of chapter four, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord. In other words, he's saying this stuff doesn't just happen. It takes resolve. It takes effort. It takes a dogged refusal to abandon your citizenship and your calling and your standards and your identity and your belief you, you don't just resist worldliness by wishing to resist worldliness it doesn't happen just by standing at the end of the meeting and thinking magically everything will be different it requires determined effort it's pretty frightening really all you have to do for worldliness to grip you is nothing you don't have to go out and court it it's looking for you it knows where you live it knows your email knows your mobile, knows your heart. And unless you resolve not to buy into the lie that's all around us, you'll be sucked in. So how do you resist it? You find a believer who's acting like Paul and you follow them. And you cultivate that homesickness that says, this world isn't your home and you live like this world isn't your home. And then you stand firm.